You're listening to Alex Ortega's story, a son who suffered a traumatic brain injury at birth and another son born at 28 weeks on the Child Life On Call podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick. But for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries, the list goes on, and then you still may not have all the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. Right. And if I could give one piece of advice for families like ours or moms like me, it's yes, your vision of your parenting future, the relationship with the child may change. And it may not be what you imagined when you were pregnant. And it may be different. It may be hard. But it's still going to be an amazing journey. And you'll learn things from your children that you didn't think that they were capable of teaching you. They'll teach you, they'll, you'll be completely changed. You'll become a completely new person. You'll become a parent and to parent them the way that you want to. And it may not be the way you wanted it, but you will end up being the parent that they need you to be. And that is just like, I think the biggest part is that you're their parent for a reason. You're who they need. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. I am so glad that you are here to listen to Alex's story today. This podcast is designed for parents of children with an illness or medical needs, and today we will hear from Alex, who has two sons with complex medical issues. My goal for this podcast is for parents to find connection in one another's stories in a time where it is easy to feel isolated by your child's journey. Please, please take the time to listen to this entire episode because at the end of our conversation, Alex has some of the best advice for parents that I have ever heard. So without wasting any more of your time, here's my conversation with Alex. Why don't you just get started and tell us a little bit about you and your family and where you guys come from. So I'm married to my high school sweetheart, have three kids together. We live in Washington, kind of in like the desert area of Washington, not in the really cool Seattle part. <laughs> um, we live on a couple acres of farm, and so we live a pretty quiet rural life. And we have three kids together. We've never had a term pregnancy. So having sick children is something that kind of always, since we've had kids, has happened. Um, we have a daughter who is six and two boys, five, and my youngest is turned two. Okay, gotcha. And so, and your your daughter and your sons, what are their names? Um, my daughter's name is Sophia, and then my oldest son's name is Noah, and my youngest is Theodore. Okay, gotcha. So um, we'll actually be both talking about Noah and Theodore today um, because they've both had some medical issues in the past and ongoing, but um, who would you like to start with today? 
we'll start with Noah. Okay. Why don't you tell us a bit about Noah? So Noah is our middle child. He was born at 35 weeks in zero days. Like he was born fairly past 34 weeks and six by just like an hour. So he was born five weeks early, um, emergency C-section, and he suffered a traumatic brain injury at birth. Um, we don't know if it was caused by the stroke or what, but he has some scarring on his brain that has caused significant developmental delays um, and speech delays. He has hypotonia, and they're working on a diagnosis, like a formal diagnosis that covers everything. Um, but it's been a long road to get there because it's not like you don't look at him and see a disability or special needs. It's more so when you look at skills that he should have at his age. Gotcha. Okay. And so walk us through kind of like what it was like for him after birth and how you guys kind of learned all this information. So when Noah was born, we knew he'd go to the NICU because he was obviously early and we didn't have a chance to get steroids. And so we knew that there would probably be some issues with breathing, but very minimal. They thought maybe only a couple of days, if that, stay in the NICU and it would be very minimal um, breathing assistance that he would need. When he was born, he was born not breathing and he needed extensive respiratory care. He was placed on a ventilator and he got incredibly sick. He had pneumonia because of fluid in his lungs from the way he was delivered. Um, and we didn't know that there would be any, there, we didn't know there was any damage to his brain, obviously because he was a baby. Um, we were given instructions about how when you have a baby that early, I mean, obviously he wasn't like crazy early, but when you have a baby that early, these are the risks that are associated with that gestation. And they encouraged us to seek out early intervention therapy just to have him evaluated once he was old enough. But we noticed initially we were like, he's going to be fine. He was only five weeks early. There's what could really go wrong. So he ended up having extensive respiratory needs and he was in the NICU for two weeks and his lungs were pretty bad. Um, when he came home, he was kind of floppy. We didn't really think much of it because he was early. And so we didn't know. Um, and so around four months old, he was not progressing in milestones and he was kind of just stalled in his development. And he was a very quiet baby. Like he never really cried. He never really fussed. He, but he also never really was, like, super excited. He wasn't, like, always, like, jiggling. And so around a month or so, we decided to pursue early intervention screening. And they told us that, yeah, considering where he was at, he was behind. He really hadn't made any milestones since birth. So as time went on, we got him into therapy and stuff, and it kind of just, more issues arose, issues that you don't realize your child may have if it's not something you can physically see. Like, for example, if someone's in a wheelchair, you can see that they're having, they can't walk. My son has issues that you can't necessarily see. So it was kind of difficult to learn because you think everything is fine and that your son, not my kid, my kid's not going to be the one that was affected by being five weeks early. So it was kind of a shock to learn that he was so far behind in his milestones. And um, they began to tell us, like, he can't hold his head up right. That's a concern. His ankles are 
bowed. That's a concern. He isn't pulling himself up. That's a concern. And I, when he was eight months old, he still wasn't sitting up on his own. And so they were like, we need to start getting into injuries to the brain. I can imagine that was really hard to take and to hear us. And you're just totally full of unknowns. And there's so much guesswork that we have to do as parents. And you're going to therapy. I'm, I'm sure that was hard news to hear that it could be something in his brain. Mm -hmm. It was it was pretty devastating. You don't like I said, you don't want to think it could be my child. And so like when he was first born and they told us maybe you should seek out early intervention care just in case he does have some delays. My daughter was four weeks early, not five weeks, only four weeks. And I was she's advanced in every area. So at that time, I was like, not my child. My child's going to be fine. Like there's going to be nothing wrong with my kid. And so it's kind of like a gut punch. And my husband and I had to step back and we're like, it, it can really happen to anyone. No one is excluded from stuff like this happening to their children. And it's it's like a whole different side of the coin. You have to go from having a child that's excelling in everything and we're getting nothing but praise from the physicians about how advanced she is and this and that to a son who needs extra help. And you almost feel like it's your fault. Like, what did you do wrong this time? Oh, that's so hard. And, and so did he eventually like have an MRI or how did they discover it? So when he was two and a half years old, we finally, he was getting ready to age out of early intervention and he really hadn't made the progress we were hoping to see. And at that point it became very real that this is something that we're not going to work past, that he's not going to just catch up and we're going to get it all together by the time he ages out. And they talked about having to age him into developmental preschool because um, early intervention only goes first to three in our area. And we started discussing formal diagnosis because insurance starts asking questions like, why is he still needing therapy? What is going on? Why has he not caught up yet? Why, why do you need so many visits approved? Because he was needing occupational therapy, speech therapy, all the therapies, physical therapy, um, feeding difficulties. Um, and not to the point of, like, needing a feeding tube or anything, but he, like, couldn't eat solid foods. He was on purees for a long time because he would choke and gag. And hypotonia affects your muscles and, that's, you know, swallowing and all of that. About two and a half and we realized he was getting ready to age out. We got a referral to neurology to do formal diagnosis. And we had the MRI of his spinal cord, his brain, and his brain stem. They were concerned with tethered spinal cord, but he ended up being fine in that area. But the brain scan did show significant scarring in his brain that points to all of these issues fall into the category of possibly having had a stroke at birth. And so looking at the accumulation of everything, his neurologist is like, hey, this is, this is what happened. There's, there's no time machine, so you can't go back and say it's this exact moment he was deprived of oxygen and he had a stroke, but he also was a lot sicker than they were anticipating. So it was kind of like, like they didn't expect him to need the care he needed. And so it could have easily been missed that they weren't looking for a child that may be having a stroke or they were too focused on getting him intubated. So neurology is like, there's no time machine. So, but this is, if we're going to say what's wrong, this is what happened. So, that's kind of how that went. And that was kind of like a, a gut punch, you know. You don't think of like a child having a stroke. You think of that as something that someone who is older has. 
you don't think that a brand new baby is going to have a stroke and that it's going to affect their whole life. And that it's a stroke and that it's missed somehow. Right. And it's and it's no fault of the doctors or, the, or anyone or the NICU staff or anything. That was, it. these things just happen and there's, you know, there's nothing anyone could have done and right. they're easily missed. And unfortunately, it just, it's our reality. It's my son's reality. And so at that time you were pregnant, I guess, when he was two and a half or? Yes. I was pregnant with his little brother. We were fairly early on, so we hadn't had any complications yet. But being as we had already had two preemies, we had a fairly good understanding that he would end up being early too. But we thought with some proactive care, we could get him to at least 35 weeks. That was the goal because I had carried to 35 weeks previously with Noah. Um, And so finding out this while I was pregnant instantly, you worry like, we're, we don't, we're trying to get to 35 weeks. Is that going to happen again? Like, and even though it's not likely that that would happen again, it's something as a parent you think, like you have that guilt, like this is my fault. And so it's going to happen again. And so I think that with Noah, it was pretty hard to hear the diagnosis. Um, and even then it's not really a diagnosis because it's not a current medical condition. It's something that he did have. And so it's just a reason as to what is going on now, not this is what we're going to say, like, in your medical record is wrong. Um, So it's just, it was really hard. And I remember getting off the phone with a neurologist and I just felt like empty. Like I remember staring out like my, I was in my living room looking out my uh, living room window on the phone with his neurologist because he's four hours away. He's like, this is what's going on. This is what we found. Um hopefully the brain can rewire because young brains are incredible and they have the ability to rewire and reroute and to cope with the damage that was incurred. And, you know, so I remember just feeling like empty and it almost was compared to my younger son. It was almost, I think it was worse hearing those diagnosis because at that time I had a relatively healthy daughter. She really, I mean, she had a couple of medical issues, but nothing to the extent of like brain damage or traumatic brain injury or stroke or whatever, something that would affect her forever. So it was, it was pretty. And so how did, um, how did you and your husband kind of handle the news from there? I mean, I guess, thankfully you had already been in so many early interventions, um, with therapies and stuff, but how did, how did you guys handle the stress of it? So I think that at first, like initially, like you have that, that shock. And then we got the, okay, we're just going to handle this. We're going to, we're going to deal with this. And it, it was really hard. I think more so for me than it was for my husband. He's very just like, okay, that's life. You take it and you just keep going. And I had a hard time. I mean, I was pregnant. So of course I was more emotional. Um, but there were many nights that I cried and I was just like, I just want him to have a normal life. I want him to be able to do things he wants to do. And like, you almost grieve the idea of the future you have envisioned for your child because they still have a future. It's just may not be exactly what you imagined and your future with them may not be what you imagined. And you don't, you know, you're going to be therapies forever. There's not going to be an end now. Like you're going to have to maintain therapies. Maybe you can take a break for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but it's not something that you're ever going to get away from. 
and you just constantly like think of things like are they going to get married are they going to have children are they going to find someone that loves them what's going to happen to them after my husband and I aren't here anymore and that's stuff that you worry about when you hear stuff like this and that was more so like me that worried like that my husband was like it will be okay we will deal with this we're going to get through this and he's still our son it doesn't change anything so I think that I don't know if maybe he had a harder time and he just didn't tell me about it or maybe he was just trying to be strong for me because I was so, I mean, I was pregnant or emotional, hormonal, and I just found out that my son had something that it's going to affect him for the rest of his life. So I think that my husband was incredibly strong through it and he's just, he's an incredibly strong person. And so I think he took it a lot better than I did. Yeah, it's just kind of that different, like, I'm going to break down, so you have to be strong, and then you kind of trade roles when you need to. Right. Because I'm, I'm sure there's... Right. Because I right. think you're at home, right? And he's working two different jobs, um, so you can be at home, and so you're having to manage so much yeah. of just, like, appointments and medications and therapies. It's, like, so hard to juggle, I'm sure. Yes. And so... I mean, my daughter and my middle son are only about a year apart, so that adds to it as well. Yes. I mean, they're only a year apart, and so they're a handful. Yeah. <laughs> and my husband works two jobs so that we don't have to put the kids in daycare because sometimes it's hard to find developmental daycares that will take special needs children. And it's sometimes it's hard to find where you can have them all together because we have two special needs sons, but we also have a uh, neurotypical daughter so we wouldn't want them separated like in two different facilities and so daycare has just never been an option for us and my husband was great and he he's always worked two jobs so that I have the ability to stay home with our kids and it's great and it's amazing and I get to spend all this time with my kids within a lot of the appointments and stuff and IEP meetings and ISSP meetings and therapy meetings and consultations and scheduling and coordinating everything falls on my shoulders and sometimes that can be hard to manage. Right. I'm sure it's really, really unbearable at times. So can you tell us a little bit about how Noah's doing now and what he's into, what makes him happy, that kind of stuff? Oh my gosh. He is just the funniest little boy. He's a total like boy's boy. So I mean, he is just rough and tumble. He likes like to pretend he's the Hulk and he like Hulk smashes things. And um, right now his biggest struggles are with like his muscle tone and his speech. Um, he's still pretty significantly speech delayed, but he's in some, he has an amazing speech therapist working with him right now and he's making great progress. But he's just the funniest little boy and he's always like telling jokes and like why the chicken cross the road are his favorite. Ones to tell. Oh my god! <laughs> Kids just... telling jokes is like so hilarious because they barely and even get it, and it's so funny. It can be like the most ridiculous joke. Where if an adult told it to me, I would look at them <laughs> like with a blank stare on my face. But hearing it from my child, who is just cracking up saying it, oh and my gosh! It could just like he'll be like just to get to the his go to like you can cross the road to get to the other side, and he's just like busting up belly laughing and he's just the sweetest little boy and he's a total mama's boy and oh he's just he's perfect even though he has these struggles he's perfect he has like braces yeah and, but that's not stopping him he's getting ready to do 
baseball in a few weeks. Oh, and my gosh. He wants to do soccer, but I don't know if I'm ready to let him do soccer because that seems a little bit more dangerous. <laughs> like, I don't want his legs to get kicked. <laughs> yeah, well, that's pretty amazing that he's got that courageous spirit to want to go out and do it. I love that. It's just crazy how much, like, kids can teach us about resiliency, right? Right. And he's just, I mean, like I say, looking at him, you would never know. If you don't see his, like, braces, you would never know that he suffered a stroke when he was born or that he has a scarred brain and that he requires all these therapies because he's he's pretty high-functioning, you know? He's like a normal kid in every other aspect besides the fact that he was injured when he was born. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He's a kid. Yep. <laughs> so I think if that's okay with you, we'll start talking a little bit about Theo. Um, and then we yeah. can kind of close out with what each of the boys have taught you. But I'd love to just go back through and hear more about your experience with him. So Theodore is our youngest. And he is our sickest child and our most needy, medically needy child. Um, he was born at 28 weeks gestation, 28 and six. Um, after I had been in the hospital pretty much my entire pregnancy off and on, and the last day was a month before he was born. And it was when I was admitted, it was you're admitted until we get him out, but we don't want to get him out. We want to keep him in as long as we can, obviously. Um, getting pregnant with Theodore initially, everything with Theodore has been a struggle from the beginning we had to go through fertility treatments to get pregnant with him. So from the very get-go, he was like our miracle baby because we weren't supposed to be able to have him. And so he was born at 28 weeks and six days, and he was 16 inches long and three pounds. Now, three pounds is incredibly large for a 28-weeker, but he was very swollen from magnesium that I had been on and all the fluids that I had been on because I was so sick. I had had blood clots and kidney infections, and I ended up having severe preeclampsia, and that is why we had to deliver him. And initially, he did really great. He did. We had all the steroids that we could have before he was delivered. We were very proactive, and once we knew he was going to be very premature, the doctors were on it with him. Like we're, we did everything we could to protect his brain, meaning multiple rounds of magnesium, um, steroids strict bed rest. I had timed showers. I couldn't, I wasn't even allowed to get up unless the nurse was there towards the end. And so we were incredibly protective of his brain. And when he was born, he did amazing. They're like, we see no signs of damage to his brain. They were incredibly careful because Miller had had a stroke and I voiced that to them that I wanted them to protect him, protect his brain. And so he did really well at first. And he was only on a nasal cannula. And, of course, they have to have feeding tubes. And this and that, and most babies at that gestation end up intubated for a while. And so when Theodore got over what they call the honeymoon stage, which is, like, I believe the first 12 to 48 hours, they'll initially do really well. And then they crash. And so when he ended up intubated, um, it wasn't a huge shock. And it wasn't super scary yet. But as time went on, he failed extubation. Like, they could not get him off his breathing tube. Um, he was extubated two or three times, I believe, and reintubated uh, all but the last time. Um, and the last time he was extubated, he actually ripped it out himself. So <laughs> he decided he was <laughs> done with that. <laughs> he, he was done. <laughs> so, I mean, 
But from the very beginning, Theodore was, they kept calling him the wild one. They're like, oh, he's the wild one in roommate. Because this little tiny baby who shouldn't be picking up his head and turning it at 28 weeks was doing that. He was moving around in his isolate. He was, and it was, of course, giving the nurses heart attacks because they have an ET tube. And if you knock it even a little bit, it can be out of place and it can't breathe. And so he's picking up and turning his head and they're like, wow, he is so strong, but we really wish he would do that. <laughs> so they kept saying he's so strong and he's, he's the wild one. He was always just this crazy, feisty baby. But one of the first questions I asked the doctors when I met him, because he was a C-section, so, and he was obviously rushed immediately to the NICU. When I met him, I asked them if he's coming home on oxygen. And they said, no, no, no. We have such, we've had such advancements in breathing technology for these babies and we get them off of breathing assistance before we send them home. We hardly send home babies on oxygen. And that was like reassuring. I was like, okay, great. Cause I'm thinking I already have a special needs child at home. How can I handle having another? So, but as time went on, Theodore wasn't able to really wean breathing assistance and he was incredibly sick. Um, before the final time he was extubated, he contracted E. coli and he was septic. And they actually prepared us to lose him. Um, and it was very hard because I had a doctor come in and I was, of course, crying next to his eye because this is my tiny baby. And with, he's septic. This is an infection that kills healthy adults. Um, and I remember just crying and she comes in and she goes, do you pray? And I, I didn't even get a chance to answer her. And she goes, She's like, well, I don't know if you do, but you need to go home and pray for your son. And I, I, that conversation will just always stick with me because I went home and I prayed for my child. I, I promised to be like a worthy mother for this, save my child and I will be worthy to parent him is pretty much what I prayed for. I, w- I won't waste this miracle child. Like, this will be worth it. And so time goes on he gets excavated but we couldn't wean the living assistance and he ended up needing chronic use of steroids to not go back on the ventilator there was a, a talk we had to have with the doctors and they said listen he needs steroids again but at this size and gestation because he still shouldn't have been born they say um it can cause neurological effects and so my husband and I had to make a decision do we let him take give this medication to our son that could potentially cause the brain damage that we are desperately trying to avoid, or do we not do it? And he could, he'll end, he would end up back on the ventilator. It's essentially what they said. And they said, we don't see him coming back off of it if he ends up back on it. And so we had to make the decision to allow them to administer this potentially dangerous medication to our son. And so the way I was trying to think about it was, yes, this could damage his brain, but a healthy brain is going to do no good if he doesn't have lungs. So at that point, we had to risk having another child with neurological impact. Like, you know, and so that's some of the hard choices you have to make when you have six kids. And so he ended up needing the medication and he stayed on it for a long time. And we repeated it, I believe, three or maybe four times. And it finally was discovered that he had adrenal suppression. The medication, the steroids he had been on, um, suppressed his adrenal gland and shrunk it, and he needed the steroids to breathe. 
And so, again, we had to make the decision to keep him on the steroids and potentially cause neuro impact or watch him go backwards on respiratory progress. And so Theodore remained on steroids until he was a year, over a year old. He was 13 months when he finally passed his test, his test to come off of them. And so for that whole year, continuously giving him these steroids, not only could impact him neurologically, it caused a weaker immune system. It caused swelling and fluid retention in his body, which was also dangerous because fluid can get into his lungs and he obviously didn't have healthy lungs. <laughs> so he went on steroids for over a year and he came home on oxygen and he suffers from bronchopulmonary dysplasia. It's a chronic lung disease of prematurity. And he also came home with a feeding tube in his stomach because of the lung disease, it made it incredibly difficult for him to eat. And he had spent most of his life with a, a tube in his mouth or a tape on his face or a feeding tube down his nose or oxygen in his nose. And so eating was something he didn't really do because he didn't want anything near his face because he associated it all with pain. So Theodore coming home and dealing with all the Theodore's issues, it was all more so physical disabilities Rather than with my other son, it is um, hypotonia and intellectual and developmental disabilities. And so it was kind of like both ends of the spectrum. Because you can look at my son, Theodore, when he has all his machines and his equipment on, you know that's a sick baby and you know that that baby has struggles. But you look at my five-year-old and unless you see his leg braces, you don't know. And it makes it difficult when you go to like like to a restaurant, for example, and they'll talk to my son. And they'll be like, oh, what's your name? And he tells them, and I can understand them because he's my child and I can hear through his speech impediment. But this stranger doesn't know that my five-year-old doesn't have the speech skills of a five-year-old. So while he's telling you his name, you may not understand him because it's almost like talking to a three-year-old. And so you have to explain to them, well, you don't have to. I mean, you're not obligated to share it with anyone, but he has some delays or... I often find myself talking for him and that's something that I'm trying to work on because we're trying to work on his speech. So, but I was, how do you handle it when a stranger doesn't know how to respond to your, what your son says? So I usually don't explain, Oh, he has developmental disabilities. This is why you can't understand them unless it's a medical situation. So if it's someone at a restaurant, they'll say, Oh, hi, what's your name? How old are you? He often replies very fast, and it's very hard for you to understand him. His name is Noah Riot. That's his first and middle name. And so he often responds with it, and it's very fast and very smushed together, and he has a hard time with his sounds, and so you probably aren't going to understand it. Um, and so I'll oftentimes, like, he'll say it, and they, like, smile, and they look at me, kind of like, very in an awkward situation. They don't want to be like, I can't understand your kid, but say so, I, I mean, I get it. We've seen it a lot, obviously. And so I'm like, oh, he says Noah Riot. And they're like, oh, how old are you, Noah? And he'll say, he'll hold up his hand. I'm like, he's five. And so I kind of just, I probably shouldn't, but I talk for him. Um, but it's better than getting, like, watching this stranger who doesn't know my son struggle to understand what he's saying. Because then it's oh, I think for them and for my son. Yeah, I think it's I think it's probably the natural instinct to to speak. I mean, my son is three, and I do that all the time. It's just like you're constantly trying to <laughs> to right. help the stranger out. Right. <laughs> yeah, he's three. His name is the. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally get that. And if it's like 
but if it's like a medical setting, like his most recent trip to the ER for some stomach issues, they were talking to him and he wasn't really making sense to them. And I could tell they couldn't really understand what he was saying. And I'm like, or they were asking him like, where does it hurt on a scale of what to what? And I'm like, he's not going to understand you. He doesn't comprehend that. I'm like, he can tell you it hurts a little or it hurts a lot or it kind of hurts, but he's not going to understand. Like you give me a one to five or one to 10 or a happy to sad because he's not at that level that you would expect a five-year-old to be at. And so if it's a medical professional, I'll be like, oh, no, he has developmental delays. We're working on it. This is what he just told you. So I'm more so apt to, like, give a little snippet of an explanation if they're a medical professional because then you also don't get, and this kills me, the pity looks because when it's a stranger, because I have explained it to a stranger before, they give you the pity look. And my son doesn't need a pity look because to him, this is his life. It's not a sad life. It's just his life. He doesn't know any different. He's still a happy child. So there's no need to feel sorry for him. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's like in those medical situations too, you're his interpreter and his advocate. And the pain scale is hard for, I think, any kid, whether they're typically developing or not. It's just, it's a really hard scale to explain to a child. So I think it's good probably for you to interpret to medical professionals. Like when he's acting like this, he is in pain. And when he's acting like this, he's not. And so look to me and I'll be the one to tell you. Well, and that goes also for like our younger son, because this child spent, he spent most of his life in hospital. He's right now getting over a major respiratory illness where he required to go back on his oxygen and tube feed. And so They'll oftentimes, when he's sick, I'll have to take him in to be evaluated. And if it's not his normal doctor or it's an ER or it's ER or something, they'll be like, oh, he's alert. He's not acting like he's in pain. He acts like he's comfortable. I'm like, but that's because this is his reality. If this was a child who was healthy and they felt this way, yeah, they're going to be just laying there because they're not used to struggling to breathe. My son has struggled to breathe his whole life, so just a little bit more struggle is nothing to him. But at the same time, it is something to his body because he can just crash so fast. So while, I mean, this, he has spent his life in hospitals, in and out of hospitals, he has a high pain tolerance. He's used to those IV sticks or the shots or he knows he's only two and he knows to be quiet when a doctor is listening to his lungs. So, I mean, there's also that where they're like, Oh, well, he seems fine. I'm like, but I know my child and he's not fine. Just because he's got a high pain tolerance doesn't mean something's not wrong. So will you talk to us a little bit about how Theo is doing now and what kind of kid he is and what he's into? So Theonore is the child that is going to give me gray hairs. I tell him all the time. <laughs> I'm like, we have saved your life so many times, child. You're going to kill me with a heart attack. <laughs> he will, he's super tiny. Like we're talking, he's only in like the eighth percentile for weight. Like he's a teeny tiny guy at two years old. And I walk in the other day and he's climbing this side of my son's bunk bed, like up <laughs> off the ground. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And instantly I like freak out. I pull him down. And that's just how he is. Like he's not a kid. You tell him he can't do something because then he's going to laugh at you and do it twice. He, I love that. He's wild. Like and he's the wild one from the NICU, right? <laughs> definitely. He definitely is. And nothing stops him. Not even if he's on his cannula, if he's on his oxygen or his feeding tube, you know, we have his oxygen on a little cart. 
he pulls it with him and he goes where he wants to go and he loves cars and he loves everything like big and dirty and he's just a boy's boy like a total boy's boy and housewives he's I mean he's had a a rough go we have periods where you think like things are finally getting better you the appointments aren't you don't have so many appointments and you don't have so many therapies because he's just doing well and then he gets hit with a respiratory illness and it sets him backwards a lot so I would say he's a relatively healthy child given his medical conditions um but he definitely doesn't let his medical conditions stop him from doing anything I mean there was a point where we had I had a discussion with one of his uh, a member of his care team when he was still in NICU because he spent he spent five months in the NICU in two different NICUs actually and we were I think about three or four months in and I looked at her and I was like is he ever going to be mobile and she looked at me and she goes I told you I'd always be honest with you because I'm very like I know that the truth may hurt to hear it about my child I need to hear it because I need how am I going to help him if I don't know exactly what's going on I need to be able to advocate for them. I need to, I want to dive into learning everything I can on how I can get them past this. And so she was a provider that promised to always be super honest and open with me, no matter how much it may suck. And so I told her, is he ever going to be mobile? Because at this time, my son is three, four months old and he's not lifting his head up. He's not rolling. He's not doing anything. And she goes, I don't know. She's like, I see a lot of red flags. And she's like, I told you I'd always be honest with you. And at this point, I don't know what he will do. I don't know if he will do anything. And so that was a hard pill to swallow. And so, of course, I'm like, okay, well, now I'm going to make sure that he tries. So that's our thing is we always tell our boys to try. If you can't do it, that's okay. But you need to try because you never know what you can do unless you attempt to do it. And so he continued to see this provider for therapies after the NICU, and she just was floored. She's like, this is not the same child that laid in that NICU bed. She's like, he is doing amazing. And so like now he, aside from his health issues, he is advanced for his actual age. For a two-year-old, he has skills beyond. He has the speech skills of a three-year-old. So, I mean, it's pretty amazing. amazing. Yeah. What, have there been any like unexpected or surprising moments kind of throughout your journey with your sons? I think when Theodore came home from the NICU, they told us this is a sick child. He's going to need oxygen assistance, probably into toddlerhood. And while he has had to go back on his oxygen assistance because of some illnesses he got in September, or on and off his oxygen, um, they told us he's going to be on it for a long time, and he's going to be on these medications for a long time, and this is just going to be how it is. So pretty much telling us to get used to it. My son weaned oxygen support. I think he was daytime weaned at eight months old and then nighttime weaned at like a 10 or 11 months old. And I remember just going in to his pulmonology appointment and then asking me, how are we doing on oxygen? And I just told him, I'm like, he's off it. He doesn't need it anymore because we have monitors. We can see breathing. We can see what his saturations are, what his heart rate is. And, like, he's doing great, and he was gaining weight, and they're like, wow, we didn't think that this was going to happen until well after his first birthday. And at this time, this was before his first birthday, so that was 
that was a big like victory for us because he was again proving them wrong. And then he did it again with his steroids. They expected um, once you attempt to wean a certain steroid that he was on, it can take a long time, almost as long as being on the medication. And now Theodore was on it to pass his first birthday, but when he began to wean it, he did it in like six weeks. And his endocrinologist had warned us, a lot of kids, he's like, I don't expect him to pass his first wean. He's like, we're going to probably have to attempt to wean, go backwards, attempt to wean, go backwards. And Theodore did it his first try. And he's just like, this is amazing. He's like, I don't understand. And then we actually had a nurse. And this is when I knew that no matter what they told me, my son may never do or that how sick my baby was because he was an incredibly fragile and sick child. He's still an incredibly fragile child. Um, I had a nurse tell me, she goes, your baby was saved for a reason. And that's another thing that has stuck with me forever. She looked at me and she goes, God saved him for a reason and he has a purpose. He's going to do something big. And I just, I just know it, whether it be raising awareness for conditions that he has or inspiring me to do things like this, to kind of let people know that they're not alone or whatever, he's going to be something that's going to change everything. And I just know it. I love that she said that to you and that it it stuck with you because it's so true. It's been a definite crazy ride. And Theodore taught me that you just can't, you don't have to, they're not always right. They could tell you your kid may not do something, but they're not always right. They don't know everything. And that if your child and you put your mind to it, they can accomplish whatever you want. And again, it may not be the future that you envision for your child or your family or the parenting relationship you wanted, but you become the parent your child needs. You become the parent that they need for their journey. And you help them be the best person that they're going to be. And in turn, they make you the best person you're going to be. Because since having my medical kids, I am a totally different person. My husband's a totally different person. My daughter, she knows, like, she'll see kids out and about that maybe are on oxygen or on TV or something. And she's like, hey, that's like Theo. And so it makes my daughter, I think that even having special needs brothers has made her more understanding. And so I think that it's just been a whole amazing thing. Yeah, definitely. She is a special sister for sure. And we'll have mm-hmm. a different level of empathy than it's impossible to teach. Right. What do you think is helping you cope now? So this is something that I've been very hesitant to share because my family instills in us that we're strong. Like you, mental illness, you just need to be strong and you deal with it and you get through it. But having special needs children can it affects you in watching your children be so sick and have to deal with so much therapy that takes a toll on you and, you know, your mental health. And after Theodore was born and we almost lost him, I watched them call code. I watched them resuscitate my child pretty much. He was on my chest and I lifted him off and I watched them resuscitate him. And that stuff can mess you up. You know, it's hard. And so for a long time, I didn't cope. I was just numb and, because I just pushed forward because that's how I was raised and that's how my family instilled into us. And no matter what's going on, push forward. You don't break because you don't have the option to break. And so for a while I didn't cope and I kind of just shoved everything down. And it wasn't really until after Theodore was home and all of that and that I realized that I wasn't coping. And so I was actually very depressed and very anxious. Anytime anyone would sneeze, I would instantly 
be in a panic because I'm like, oh my gosh, my son is going to catch whatever you have, even if it was just allergies. So um, when I realized that that's how I was feeling, I'm like, I'm not coping and I need help. And so I reached out to my doctor and I started antidepressant and anti-anxiety medication. And that, that may not be the answer for everyone on how to cope with certain things that they've dealt with in regards to being a special needs parent, but it can be very emotionally draining, very emotionally exhausting and mentally draining and physically draining. And sometimes you, you got to take care of you. And so I've learned that for me, starting medication has helped me tremendously, but also I do things like last night, I just went out with a girlfriend and I went to the movies and dinner and it was just her and I, there was no kids, no husband. It was just time for me. Like, so I think that that's also something that has helped me cope is learning to take care of me so that I can take care of them. So whether it be I need five minutes in the bathroom to ball about another hurdle we have to go through, whether it be issues with the school district, whether it be getting a medication approved or insurance, because that's other stuff that you have to deal with as well. Um, what, so if I need that five minutes to cry out my frustrations in the bathroom, I, I take those five minutes. And I've learned it's okay. You can break down, but the biggest thing is getting back up because you have to advocate for your children and you have to be their voice where they can't and you have to raise awareness and you have to just raise acceptance and teach people that yeah they have special needs but they're still people and they're still children and they're still worthy and so I think like that's how I cope is you know I take my five minutes if I need it or 10 or 20 or whatever and I think it's important for other people other parents who are special needs parents who are medical parents or whatever that they remember to take care of themselves so that they can take care of their children and so in taking care of yourself you are helping take care of your child because you can't pour an empty cup pour from an empty cup and that's something that I've always believed in so if you can't give to them if you have nothing to give and so just take care of yourself and for me I, I needed some medicine to help me mentally and emotionally and I need my five minute breaks in the bathroom to cry and then I'm good to go. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, I've heard that from a lot of parents in similar situations that medication and therapy really, it helped and it was a game changer and kind of like you described, it just helped you be the best you that you can be, which in turn is, is totally helping your kids. So I think it's amazing that not only you can share that with this podcast, but also that you took the step to just go to your doctor and talk about it. Cause sometimes that's, that's the hardest step is just saying it out loud. And it, it definitely was hard for me because I didn't want to be, I couldn't be broken too. I had to be whole for my children. Like there was, I couldn't, I couldn't put that on my husband either. I didn't want to be broken. I didn't want to be something else that he had to help support or take care of because it was my job to support and take care of, you know, I'm the mom. I can't be broken. There's no time for that. And so it was, it was a big deal for me to step back and be like, I'm not broken, but I went through some stuff and I need some help because helping myself, I'm going to help my kids. What would you, um, or if you could describe what your children have taught you through this experience, um, of being their mom, what would it be? To never give up. I mean, Noah went through things that this could have been way worse. You know, strokes can be completely debilitating for children. I mean, they are for adults sometimes. 
and to just never give up in that the human body is an amazing thing because he suffered brain injury and his brain is slowly rewiring and figuring out how to do things. It may be differently, but it's figuring out how to accomplish it no matter what. And then with Theo, he's just, he's tough, man. Like I look at that kid and it breaks my heart being there for that blood draw or that shot again or more testing. And he just takes it like a champ and he is the strongest little boy I have ever come across. And I know every parent probably thinks that, but this kid is tough as nails, you know? And so when I feel like I'm weak and I can't do this anymore, I can't be in the ER again with him. I can't be there for that hospital admission. I look at him and I'm like, but he's here. I can do this too. Because he's just a little guy and I'm the mom. So if my child can do this, I can. And so they've, I, they've just taught me so much resilience and so much acceptance and just it's almost taught me to be a better mom because you have to learn how to parent in ways that work for them as well. So, and they've just, I'm a very shy person and I'm a very timid person, but they've taught me to stand up and to, when something needs said, say it. And when someone needs help, give it. And They've taught me to be a kind, a kinder mom, a better mom. They've taught me to be a better me. Man, they're amazing. And so are you. <laughs> and so are you. <laughs> um, if you could recommend any resources to a parent who may be facing a similar experience or similar challenge, what, what resources really helped you? So I think just networking with other parents was definitely my biggest resource. Um, I don't, I mean, multiple parents, because you, if you're like me, you want to know everything about someone who maybe was in a similar situation as your child, you want to know every possible outcome. And so I think networking with other parents, like I've made some amazing, you know, feeding tube friends. Uh, They have children with feeding tubes and I've checked with a lot of amazing moms. And I always say that reaching out, whether it be just via Facebook or an email or joining like a support group, I think that that is an amazing resource for people going through a medical journey like this or special needs parenting or NICU experience or whatever, connecting with other people is going to be extremely beneficial. Um, an official resource that I really loved when I was in the NICU um, with Theo was Hands to Hold. That's another podcast. Um, I, I didn't know about this podcast, so I probably would have checked this one out too, obviously. But um, just reaching out and listening to other stories um, is amazing and there's a lot of Facebook groups and so that's something to connect to also there's pretty much a Facebook group for anything so just that networking with other parents is an amazing resource and social media is an amazing resource to connect with families like yours I just want parents with kids like mine to know that or maybe their kid was just diagnosed with similar things that my children were diagnosed with it doesn't make your child not normal your child is still normal. They just have a different way of doing things or a different way of being a child. And you're not alone. There are people out there who would love to connect with you and support you and help you get through the beginning part of your journey. And I think that just making those connections is invaluable for parents with children like ours. I totally agree. And a lot of the feedback I've gotten on this podcast is that 
Like really, even if it's not the same diagnosis, like parents are resonating with your story, it could be a totally different situation, but it's just kind of the words that parents are speaking. It just, it's just nice to know that somebody else is going through it. Right. And if I could give one piece of advice for families like ours or moms like me, it's yes, your vision of your parenting future, the relationship with your child may change. And it may not be what you imagined when you were pregnant, and it may be different, it may be hard, but it's still going to be an amazing journey, and you'll learn things for your children that you didn't think that they were capable of teaching you. They'll teach you, they'll, you'll be completely changed. You'll become a completely new person, you'll become a parent, and to parent them the way that you want to, and it may not be the way you wanted it, but you will end up being the parent that they need you to be. And that is just like, I think the biggest part is that you're their parent for a reason. You're who they need. I love that. I wish I could listen to you say that all the time. <laughs> I'm just going to keep that on a recorder and play it over and over and over again. Because that's such a interest. I mean, that's such a good way to put it. Like, you may not be the parent that you expected you will be, but you will be the parent that your child needs you to be. That's amazing. I am just so thankful to you, Alex, for being so vulnerable with us and talking about some of the deepest and hardest parts of your life and how you have picked yourself back up is just miraculous. So Noah and Sophia and Theodore are just so lucky to have you as their mom because you are so incredibly strong. If you would like to continue to follow along with Alex's story, you can find her on Instagram at underscore Alex underscore Ortega underscore. And they have a Facebook page for Theo at Miracle at 28. And so you can follow along with them there. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Please follow along with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Child Life on Call. Uh, And if you ever have any questions or suggestions, please get in touch with me. Remember to please leave a review on iTunes and Apple Podcasts because it makes a big difference for parents to be able to find us easier. So thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week.